Hey, this is Peter Clark with Team Futurism. In this episode, I'm interviewing Elliot Roth, who is the founder of Spira, a company focused on replacing animal and petroleum products with algae. We discuss everything from climate change to cooking algae burgers. We also discuss Elliot's involvement with the Seasteading Institute, which is an organization working to build autonomous floating communities on the ocean. Thanks for listening. So, yeah, I want to talk today about your company, Spira, but also... I actually discovered you because I was on the uh, the Seasteading Institute's website, oh, and cool. I was looking for somebody there to talk to you about the Seasteading project. You're one of the California ambassadors, and so yeah, and so I was like, who's who's this guy? And I was I was looking you up, and then I discovered that you're doing some kind of radical and awesome things with algae. Um, so I wanna I wanna talk to you about both projects today. I kind of want to start with the Seasteading Institute. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about your um your involvement with them, and maybe just like a high level overview of what that organization is. Yeah, yeah. So the the Sea Setting Institute was founded in I believe like early 2010s by a guy by the name of Patrick Friedman, grandson of Milton Friedman, and it was with the specific focus around enabling new governments to form on the open ocean, to have new regulatory environments, and this idea of um, sort of the diversity of thoughts, opinions, um, and really it kind of was co-opted a little bit by this libertarian ideal of everybody having their own island and setting up <laughs> their own governance systems and everything of that sort. But I, I always was very interested in this idea of sort of like a biodiversity of thought. And I think that one of the key elements of seasteading is this, this self-reliance or self-sufficiency. And so I got involved in seasteading back in like 2015, 2016, particularly because I was interested in how do you enable biological systems to promote um, solutions for the basic needs of people, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think most uh, companies and organizations that do exceptionally well are built around a philosophical thought or some sort of social psycho psychological awareness and something that goes about creating a more just and equitable world. And so I was really interested in applying the tools of synthetic biology and using these tiny self-replicating systems that we know as microbes as a means of solving a lot of the problems that you find in these contained biospheres, these, these contained ecosystems. And so I've applied that to seasteading in one aspect of like living on an island, how do you provide for food, water, shelter, those kind of raw material constraints that you find when you're in an environment without much resource. And then also I've, I've done some missions uh, to space, space in quotations. I went and lived in an analog astronaut habitat on the side of a volcano in Hawaii, where Whoa. I grew algae to feed myself. And I've been fascinated with this idea of providing for all your basic needs in a tiny amount of space for no resources whatsoever um, and doing it indefinitely so that we can move to a post-scarcity and more abundant world. So are, are you kind of thinking that a lot of our current way of feeding ourselves is unsustainable in terms of uh, maybe meat or, or other kinds of agriculture. You're are, begging are you, the question, man. Yeah, it's definitely unsustainable, of course. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I would have been 100% with you, except for the fact that weird and kind of exciting things are happening in the world of lab-grown meat, which right now it seems like it's very still, you know, taking a lot of money to not actually make much of a product. But I it's one of those things that might eventually become... Sort of uh, Lab-grown meat is a way for rich people to keep on eating meat without feeling guilty. I, okay, I really okay. 
the hot take on that is that it's very expensive to grow meat and we might right. as well focus on what is as close to converting energy from the sun into usable nutrients as possible. And so uh, what you find with the lab-grown meat is that because it's going to take a lot of time to develop the technology and because the scale is, is off the charts, um, what's, what's going to happen is very similar to biofuels in the electric car where people were really investing heavily on developing biofuels to go about replacing gasoline in cars, but the cost of gasoline remained constant at, at like a couple dollars a gallon, and then it cost thousands of dollars to produce a gallon right. of biofuels. And the same thing is true for meat, you know, it's a couple dollars per pound of meat, and it's going to cost thousands of dollars to produce that same pound. By the time that lab-grown meat actually develops into a technology that is mature to be able to grow those kind of cells and feed people, uh, the market will have moved on to plant-based meat. And they already really have. There's already analogs that are plant-based that are that are much more viable. I think that my prediction this next year is that we'll see mo like a lot of the uh, lab-grown meat and cellular agriculture companies go under, sadly. Um, I think that they're run by exceptional technologists, incredibly smart people. I just think that a lot of that money and a lot of that um, a lot of that talent is misdirected in shifting uh, shifting habits and overall perception and the way that the world produces its food. Right. Yeah, I certainly can't argue with you because I don't actually know like the backstory on really much of this at all. <laughs> sure. But uh, so I mean, you know, there, there's this world where there's this narrative that the elites are going to force us to eat bugs because we can't sustain our current practices with with our diets which is like terrifying you won't even own them people. you'll you'll yeah. own, own no bugs but you'll eat them all the time and you'll like it and you'll like it <laughs> absolutely you're taking this in a more optimistic way where you are i i mean like algae is not something that people have an inherent like eu effect for at all i mean like you can buy seaweed chips at Trader Joe's right now. You know, there's that sort of a thing. I, I actually forgot to, to uh, key this up at the beginning, but you're right now in the middle of a uh, an experiment to only eat algae for a month. Is that correct? Didn't you, this kick yeah. off? I believe April first, right? Um, it was it was supposed to kick off April first. I needed to go into like a further review by the experiment.com team, but okay. I'm I'm now about to launch this experiment and in essence i will be eating nothing but algae uh 24/7 for a good 30 days it's super slimy and it's it's focusing in on making sure that i can get all my uh, macros micros all the calories i need from algae and it's without a doubt possible in in something something that i think is really important to recognize for for anyone is that I don't expect people to replace all of their diet with any one thing. Like we are yeah. omnivores and that we should eat a variety of different foods all the time. I think that my motivation is to showcase to people that you can adopt a newer, or really they're not that new when you consider the world in total, but really like uh, start adopting more healthier and sustainable uh, food sources for the planet and start incorporating those in your diet in a way that is relatively easy, effortless, and uh, actually leads to healthier and cheaper outcomes for people. Yeah, I get the feeling this is not your first rodeo with eating algae, right? You, you mentioned that you ate it on living on the side of a, of a volcano. Um, <laughs> what, what got you into you know, the, the world of algae? And when did you start thinking, oh, this is something I could replace my, my normal daily diet with? 
Yeah, yeah. So I kind of did that out of necessity. So um, I mean, I was really interested in seasteading. I became an ambassador back in 2016, and I got really into this idea of producing all of the things that I need in a tiny amount of space for no money, no resources whatsoever. And I was doing some consulting work for clients that never ended up paying me. So I ran out of money. Um, I built this lab in undergrad by dumpster diving for various pieces of equipment, fixing it up and putting it in a friend's garage. And I said, okay, well, I got this lab and I, I really need just protein. Protein was the most expensive thing, right? So mm. like trying to get the basic necessities, I was looking at my overall cost. I had like negative $17 in my bank account. Like what the hell am I gonna do? And I went to the grocery store and I looked around and I realized that our supply chains are all over the place, man. They come from everywhere. To get an avocado to a grocery store in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, where I was at the time, what does that take in terms of carbon, in terms of effort, in terms of exploitation of labor, all of that, it's insane. And so I thought to myself, like, I should be able to grow everything I need in a tiny space for virtually no money. And I'm a big space geek. And so I looked into what NASA was doing for astronauts because I figure tiny space, no resources, they have to be really healthy. <laughs> so I discovered that they were using algae for carbon capture, they were using algae for wastewater treatment, and then feeding it to astronauts. And I was like, okay, you know, this is a closed system where they can do all of this. I should be able to grow my own algae. I got a loan from somebody. I was living on couches at the time. I started growing tanks of algae from donated aquarium tanks from friends. And I would take scoops out and I would take, it would be kind of like um like a paste almost, or like, um think of it like Elmer's glue when it came out and then you would press it and form like a cheesy kind of thing. And I would eat that as my main protein intake for about two and a half months when I got started. And it was most of my protein during that time. And then I made up the rest from food waste from whoever I could talk to, whatever I could find. And so that, that was how Spirit started in the first place was, living on a diet of whatever algae that I could produce for myself and survive. What What is the tastiest product out there that's produced by algae? I mean, are we talking like algae burgers? I mean, what what's uh, what's on offer mm. here? Yeah, so Aqua is a company that, that produces a lot of really interesting products. They produce an algae burger that's really, really pretty good. Um, they also have different kinds of kelp jerky um, Barnacle Foods is another one that produces kind of like a, uh, like a sauerkraut almost, but out of like these, these like kelp uh, rings or kelp noodles. Um, you can find all kinds of different like tastes and textures using algae. Part of my motivation for this diet is to, to mostly have it be algae and water if I can. So. Okay. Um, a lot of what I've focused on in doing research. Is there articles, like salt involved, things like that? Or or are we talking like just very just, pure algae? Just, just trying to do pure algae and water <laughs> as much as I can. Um, because I'm a sample size of one. And so to try to control or account for the experiment, that's that's part <laughs> of it. And I'm I'm taking like measurements before I did a gut microbiome test. I'm doing I did a full metabolic panel. Um, and then I'm taking uh, weekly checkups with the doctor as a means of checking in and, and making sure that everything's proceeding according to plan. But um, the overall idea is that you should be able to produce this or at least harvest it. And it's way more sustainable than anything that's currently out there and carbon negative and cheaper, all of that. Mm -hmm. what, what, what do you envision uh, your daily, you know, while you're doing this experiment, do you have like a breakfast, lunch, dinner, like planned out? Or, 
I mean, how are you, how are you arranging meals or are you just like kind of snacking all day? How, how does it, you know, how do you maintain the <laughs> sustenance with this? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I'll be doing is I'm going to normally start out the day with a breakfast shake. That breakfast shake is mostly going to be a blend of microalgae, cyanobacteria, and, um, probably some algae oil. So there, there's a couple of different species that I'll use, but in particular, spirulina is going to be one of my mainstays as a protein input, and then also accounting for a lot of my micronutrients. Chlorella as well is going to be uh, anything that that's sort of like a bulking agent, more or less. And then nanochloropsis is going to be my main oil source. And hmm. schizochytrium as well is another type of algae that provides quite a bit of oil. Um, algal oil is what fish use to get their oil. So I'm cutting out the middle fish there. Um, so I'll be getting plenty of omega-3s, plenty of calories from that. And that's what I start off the day with is like high protein, high, high fat. Um, and then midday, normally I try to actually avoid too much food in the middle of the day because you hit a slump in terms of energy levels. So I'm going to try to focus in on something that gives it a little bit of texture, a little bit of snacking. So um, I'm really excited to try dulse, which when cooked is sort of similar to bacon in terms of its flavor which is really interesting. It's a seaweed off the coast of Scotland. Um, and then I will kind of be forming some sort of seaweed salad for lunch is my expectation. And then dinner is when I really get to experiment. So I get to experiment with algae breads or mm. I get to experiment with algae cheeses or I get to experiment with algae patties and proteins that I can kind of form together into something. And so that's what I'm really excited about. Um, Turns out that like most of what we use as uh, texturizers or binders or fixatives or foaming agents or other things like that are algae derived already, whether or not it's carrageenans or agars or alginates or anything of the sort. So I can get a whole lot of texture out of the seaweed and a whole lot of the um, carbohydrates out of the seaweed. And then most of my protein and most of my fats are going to come from microalgae or cyanobacteria. So uh all, all that is really fascinating you just named off of you know it seems like a lot of different types of algae in the mm. world of algae like how many types are there like, i mean are they still being created and discovered i mean what's the what what sort of world exists here yeah there's there's millions and millions of types of algae out there it's one of the most diverse uh species uh categories of, of organism particularly because it's one of the most ancient as well. Hmm. So um, when I when I talk algae, it's more of a generic term for any aquatic green thing, more or less. Um, and most of the algae that we know of today uh, evolved about 3 billion years ago uh, hmm. during something known as the Great Oxygenation Event. And the Great Oxygenation Event was when the world was like the soupy mick and there was nothing going on, all of a sudden, in that soupy mix of chemicals, photosynthesis developed, and photosynthesis has given rise to everything that we have around us. Whether it's the wood on your shelf or the pages in your books, which are made up of trees, which photosynthesize. Trees are just really complicated algae that developed on land, right? So when you look at an algal cell, it is a chloroplast, more or less, that's absorbing light from the sun and then developing more and more complex machinery. And so most animal species rely on photosynthesis and consume photosynthetic organisms. And we, we, if you consume meat, end up eating animals that consume photosynthesis. Everything relies on that energy transfer from the sun 
anyways. All the petrochemical products that we end up using, uh, people think that it's, it's, it's dinosaurs that were buried and then turned into oil. In reality, a lot of that's old algae that has then been buried for long periods of time and gone through liquefaction um, over extensive periods of time to form the kind of petrochemicals we use. So much of our world nowadays is built up on photosynthesis, which is reliant on these aquatic microbes and uh, microorganisms. And so um, when we're talking about algae, it ended up differentiating. So you ended up having those chloroplasts as like little tiny photosynthetic machines. Um, then you got a little bit more complicated and you had eukaryotic algae, or we call them microalgae. And then you got more complicated and you got macroalgae, which is seaweed. And a lot of the seaweeds that I'm going to consume during during my diet. But yeah, like I said, there's, there's millions of different species. Um, I think that it's really important to note that the world subsists on about 15 different vegetables and about six different animal species right now as the mainstays of our diet. And so it, how, how insane is that, that we, we only kind of consume and farm in any kind of way all of those sort of species when there's millions and millions and millions of species out there that we can tap into. And by doing so, enable a greater biodiversity and restoration especially the coastal ecosystems when we're talking about algae. So I'm kind of thinking about, you know, uh, fungi as a almost a parallel in a sense in terms of it's ancient and that sort of thing. There are some really radical and scary types of fungi. There's, you, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, and then there's mushrooms that can kill you that you just like find on the ground in the forest. Is there anything like that that's, that's you know, psychedelic or maybe like poisonous in the, in the algae family? Yeah, yeah. If you have ever seen warnings, especially uh, during algae blooms, uh, warnings that say don't swim in the water, don't drink the water, don't put your pets in the water. Most of the time it's because the algae itself that's growing in the water is putting out toxins as a means of defending itself against the other creatures in the water. Because like at the end of the day, like if you're an organism, you're trying not to get eaten. And so you're trying to defend yourself and they create different compounds as a means of defending themselves. And so anytime there's a major algae bloom as a means of competing with other algae species, as a means of going about growing in the best possible way, they tend to put out some toxins into their environment. Most of the species that I'm focused on are already generally regarded as safe by the FDA. They've passed uh, with flying colors. They've been consumed for centuries, if not millennia by humans. Um, so they're already really, really safe across the board. Uh, a lot of these algae blooms also give rise to some beautiful things like uh, you, you're living in Sacramento, so you may not have seen this near to the coast, but um, the coast itself during an algae bloom sometimes has something like red tide, which has these little dinoflagellates which glow whenever the waves are crashing in. So you can see these beautiful that. crashing yeah. waves. Awesome. Yeah, really, really cool. Well, I have one more question about the food thing, um, particularly with your current experiment. How much like like uh, cooking or, or baking is involved with creating some of these these algae creations? Are you, I mean, you know, using like an air fryer or like an oven or a microwave? What, I would love the, an air what fryer. What are the tools that are that are needed to create some of these, uh, you know, plates? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. I mean, I think most of what I'm doing, I'm I'm gonna be mainly using a lot of the microalgae and cyanobacteria as, as sort of my bulking agents or powders. They, they generally come in powdered form because they're okay. single-celled organisms, right? They're like really, really tiny. Um, the, the kelp and the seaweed is gonna be the texturizing agents. And those are the ones that actually give bulk and give chew and give texture 
uh, to everything else. And so, um, and then the algae oil brings it all together. So what I'm really thinking about when I'm building these dishes is that I'll blend it in a bowl. And there's certain things that you can end up doing. Like one of the things I'm really excited about is potentially uh, doing some secondary fermentation. So what that means is I can let the natural yeast that's in the environment go about fermenting different things. Um, I could, for example, take some um, some like vinegar and some kelp and then put it in uh, into a ferment and then make some kelp sauerkraut as an example. Kind oh, of, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I could potentially proof some algae bread. So um, some of the chlorella um, that I'm using has this, this almost like cheesy flavor associated with it. And so um, what I would do is I, I could potentially take some like euglena powder or something like that, or bonus powder, which is more of like a, like a flour almost, and then take some of this chlorella, which I know forms like a, like almost cheesy, you can get it to bind together too. So almost egg-like uh, mm -hmm. in its texturizing ability, and then go about mixing that together, proofing it, and then baking it in a loaf of some sort. So it's almost like a cheesy bread, like a ponja queijo it, for anybody who is familiar with Brazilian food. Um, I, I'm a big foodie too. So I have all of these like crazy ideas of different things that I want to do. And I see it as a challenge to myself to be get really creative with it. So some of the outputs of this are going to be, one, I'm tracking all the, as much as I can, the amount of CO2 emissions, the amount of, um, the amount of like, nutrition inherent in each of these, um, the amount of cost associated with each of these. I'm going to be putting together spreadsheets around that. And then I'm going to be developing a recipe book. And that recipe book is going to be all around the different recipes that I've tried and failed and kind of some of the things I learned about that. I'm going to be keeping an audio diary uh, during my time. And so, uh, and then a, a video diary as well. And the video diary I'm hoping to turn into uh, documentary kind of like super size me a little bit. Um, and then all of the health data is going to be public. So I have a health tracker here, which is going to be measuring my sleep, my walking, everything is heart rate variability, anything associated with that. I'm doing metabolic tests every single week. And then I'm going about doing gut microbiome tests every single week as well. So all of this wow. as a means of getting as much data as possible. And I've talked to uh, doctors, I've talked to, um, I'm about to talk to a nutritionist as well. So trying to plan as many interviews as possible. I'm going on a seaweed foraging expedition. Um, hmm. Just all kinds of different things to showcase that this is something that you can incorporate as part of your life. Have you ever thought about opening up a restaurant with these ideas? I'm really sensing like a silver lake. Spiral.com <laughs> <laughs> extension. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when I moved to LA, uh, we were involved pretty heavily with the Soylent team because the founder of Soylent made an okay. investment in my company. And um, it was really interesting to talk about molecular gastronomy, especially, and this idea of deconstructing food and reconstructing it. I think that we exist in a time where we're in the midst of uh, undoing the food system that we have. We have this this kind of like mass market uh, commodity food system, and it's it's kind of uh, disassociating people from the things that they eat. And we are the fattest we've ever been, and the most malnourished, and just really unhealthy in a bunch of different ways. 
And so shifting our food system and redoing it so it's more local, so it's more sustainable, mm -hmm. so it's healthier, so people understand where, where their food is coming from, it's really, really important. I think that the same is true of the different ingredients that we use. I mean, a lot of them are petrochemical derived. A lot of the, the more harmful things in our supply chain are all based around oil. And so that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do in my work is undo the damage of a lot of that. Can this really scale up so that we are talking about a national or a, or a global community that's actually like consuming a lot of algae? How, I mean, right now, you know, we're talking like wheat and soy and corn. Uh, yeah. You know, you go to the Midwest and you just see it's acre after acre for miles and miles and miles. I was like a third miles. corn. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, <laughs> wheat is basically a weed. You know, you just plant the thing and you walk away and it comes back and you have a wheat crop. So that's mm -hmm. why it's been a staple for, you know, thousands of years. Um, and I'm sure will continue to be. Well, it sounds like you're kind of thinking that this will replace or could potentially replace some of those. Um, but I mean, would you have to conceivably live next to a, a body of water or if you live in like Iowa, could you start, you know, a, an algae farm? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we work with 83 farms now in 15 different countries. And a lot of the farms that we work with are growing microalgae or cyanobacteria, which are both like single celled species of algae. And, um, in doing so, all you really need is a pond and non-arable land. So like okay. you don't you don't need anything that you would normally farm other crops on, and I don't expect algae to completely replace these. Like like humans and bread go hand in hand, man. Like everybody loves their carbs, right? Right. So um, the idea is to have something that like adds to supplements your diet and becomes easier to farm and is more sustainable. So the al algae that we grow, the microalgae we grow, doubles every single day, which means that with a small volume, like for example, what I was growing in that garage lab space that I had set up. Um, I grew about 1,200 liters, think of it like a cubic meter or so of uh, total algae that it was producing. And it was, the, it was the protein that I needed every single day. So it could produce about 60 grams of protein, which is your recommended daily amount of protein every single day for my And something like that is, is insane to think of that you can take a cubic meter of space and produce everything that you need in terms of your protein requirements, wow. right? Like that's that's the same kind of thing as, as uh, taking sort of the acreage that you would need for a cow and being able to produce that 70 kilograms of protein for a cow, like a cow produces 70 kilograms of protein in three years and doing the same thing in three weeks. So if you take a look at how we're using land, how we're using farmland, mm -hmm. and then also keep in mind that the water usage, the energy usage, you only need the amount of water you start with as long as you control for evaporation. You only need kind of the amount of energy that you start with. You have a little paddle wheel that turns it. It's really, really low energy cost. And so when you take into account all of that and you just need salt and light, and then it takes in CO2 and captures CO2, and makes it carbon negative, it really is, uh, it's, it's kind of insane to me that we're not incorporating more and more algae in our diet. The, the limitation is the representation and the taste. Those, those seem right. to be, Kind of the main limitations. Um, when we're talking about seaweed too, like we shouldn't have called the world Earth; it should be called ocean. Like we live on planet ocean. Seventy <laughs> percent of the world is made up of water, and so if you can farm out on the water, it makes way more sense. And that that brings it up back around to seasteading too. So like, if you right. have if you're surrounded by water on all sides, like it makes a lot of sense to farm out there. 
Yeah, and I, I know that you guys, in particular, your your company, you're working on a lot more than just food, right? You guys have uh, pigments, and I think that I'm not sure if you guys are involved in this. But I know that like algae has been involved in carbon capture out in the ocean, right? What are some of the other projects that you're really excited about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, predominantly, the way that I communicate what we do is we we've created a biomanufacturing system that is carbon negative. And mm -hmm. so what I'm focused on initially, just as a means of starting to displace oil products, are things that are really problematic in the food supply and the cosmetic supply chain, really the supply chain. And in particular, what's going on right now is we mainly use coal tar as an artificial dye. And it's like leftover mm -hmm. oil gunk that goes into candy products and it goes in on your face and it's what you eat anytime you eat something that's like a blue jolly rancher that's using leftover oil gunk and mm. then it's pretty nasty when you think about it and it's sure it's fda fda approved and everything like that but it's supporting the petrochemical industry and what that means is that uh people are really frustrated by having their kids consume this like that's kind of mm -hmm. insane so we're we've been working on algae pigments that displace and replace these colors and engineering those pigments so they're a one-to-one -one swap out and so a lot of the times when you have like a natural pigment it can't do the same things as a petrochemical based color because the pet petrochemical colors they're like really really stable they persist everywhere they never degrade they never break down um, which is kind of horrifying when you think about it, but for industrial applications, that's amazing. Like they want it yeah. to remain that color. <clears throat> so for us, we we get bio-based pigments to mimic, algae-based pigments to mimic petrochemical pigments with the ability to break down over time. And so um, that those are our first products that we're producing. So we started producing blue and engineering it so it's stable, a red, a yellow, a green, uh, potentially an orange coming out pretty soon. So all of those colors are specifically focused on replacing petrochemical colors and starting to generate some money. And then we we work our way kind of like Tesla and the Tesla Roadster. We know those are really high value and very low volume. And so we can make enough money to start turning a profit that way and then start steadily working our way down the cost curve. And so after all of those colors, we end up having enzymes, which end up improving upon industrial processes and decarbonizing industrial processes. And then we have proteins and edible proteins. Those edible proteins can be used in plant-based foods. And then we start getting into broader categories like plastics, right? Plastics are everywhere. And so we right. can start tapping into some of those. What do you think the future looks like for algae as part of the supply chain? Yeah, I mean, I think in my mind, it, it takes a village. Like it's really gonna take all kinds of different projects in a bunch of different mm -hmm. ways. I really see what we're doing as a cornerstone of, of really developing the, the bioeconomy and biomanufacturing. So the White House just released a statement that they were gonna throw a couple billion dollars into biomanufacturing. Most people don't even know what biomanufacturing is, let alone like the fact, why, why is the White House focused on it? Why is my tax money going to this? Well. A lot of it is because there's this promise of producing carbon negative materials, goods that go and, and are used by everyday people. Um, and the only way that we can go about doing that is using biology. And so I, I truly believe that algae has a cornerstone effect to play 
where it can be the fundamental basis of a lot of the systems that we talk about. Like you had mentioned cultured meat before, a lot of these cultured meat companies approached me about using algae as an input to cultured meat. I was like, why don't you just stick with algae and use it to make whatever you want? So that, that's kind of the mentality that I have is that all of the things that we produce are going to be carbon neutral or carbon negative. And uh, a lot of what we end up doing is starting out with something really simple and then getting more and more complicated as we get go along. So taking in waste CO2, taking in waste water, and then using that to produce carbon negative materials, raw inputs, raw material inputs to start decarbonizing our supply chain. Are there any downsides that you see to, I mean, it really seems like not with like a carbon negative thing, but I mean, are, are there any downsides to this? I mean, is there, is there so much like human labor involved possibly? Or I mean, what, what's the, what are we missing here? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 of course. Um, and to claim that there aren't any downsides means that like, I'm just being dumb, right? Like it's, there's, of course, there's always something. The double-edged sword of technology is such that you invent nuclear energy and then bomb Hiroshima, right? right. So it's such that there's always going to be some unforeseen consequence of your action. And what we're trying to do is account for that as best as possible. I think that uh, technology tends to happen in uh, a, a isolated laboratory setting. And that's mm -hmm. one of the main difficulties is that people can't, resonate with it they can't actually grapple with it and there's no like tangible experience if people in a white lab coat are doing it in some sort of sterile condition and mm -hmm. so for us my main constituents are the farmers that we work with in developing communities so we work with people in places like burkina faso or indonesia myanmar all over the world as a means of producing our our engineered algae and right now in all those different countries we pay them more than a living wage of whatever they're working there and then they farm our particular strains of algae as a means of producing these materials. And so I am indebted and really beholden to a lot of these farmers as our main partners, because we couldn't do what we do without them. And I think that's really important to be transparent in our supply chain to showcase, hey, these farmers are what make, make it happen. And that being said, like by shifting our production away from petrochemicals, that's going to displace a lot of jobs in the petrochemical industry, but we can co-opt the same tools of our destruction as a means of, of saving ourselves from climate change and global warming. I, I tell people my companies like if Monsanto and Standard Oil had a baby to undo the damage of both those companies, because we work on crop genetics, like seed genetics, kind of like Monsanto, using the same tools that were really uh, involved in these monoculture crops and a lot of hazardous activities in the 1970s and 80s, and then using the same techniques as a means of making a healthier world and kind of this Willy Wonka-esque production of different materials and products that we can go about using in our supply chain. And then on the flip side, we've developed a lot of technology, kind of like Standard Oil, where we're refining algae into its various components and using all parts of the buffalo, using all parts of the algae. So going from just like our green algae into a full spectrum of different colors and all sorts of different products from the same same starting material. And I, I'm really kind of indebted to a lot of the farms that we work with. And I see us expanding and working with more farmers as well and, and kind of having people actually have their local algae farm that they can go to that produces a lot of the materials that they use in a daily basis. Um, a funny story is, uh, and this is actually part of how I was producing things on site is I built this little home photobioreactor system, like a personal grower, or think of it kind of like a food computer, 
um, or like a synthesizer, like Earl Grey tea hot, right? <laughs> um, and so at the press of a button, you could get a shot of protein every single day. And it's always been my dream to have people be more connected with whatever they consume. And mm -hmm. so being able to have something on site where you can press a button, get exactly what you need and program it in such a way that can taste like schnozberries, right? Or hot dogs or whatever you want is kind of the dream outcome of a future world where we live in a post-scarcity place. Yeah, wow, okay, uh, I'm, I'm sold on that kind of vision. Um, are you are you optimistic about the future in terms of climate change, or are you you know kind of driven by like fear and pessimism? Dude, uh, I mean, I I oscillate. There's certain days where I'm like, the world's ending, <laughs> nothing I can do is going to stop it. Other days, mm -hmm. I wake up and I'm like, wow, I'm surrounded by really amazing people that are pushing the mm -hmm. boundaries of creativity to try to solve this problem. I think that never discount human ingenuity in the face of overwhelming despair. Um, yeah. hope, hope was found at the bottom of Pandora's box and people oftentimes forget that. And it's either because hope is one of the greatest evils or one of the greatest blessings. And it is the core ethos of anybody alive who has the ability, uh, you have the moral imperative to do something to change the direction that we're all headed in. So I think that uh, especially looking at uh, the things that I can do with my time on this planet, I would love to leave the world better than I found it and do everything possible. And I work really hard every day to kind of make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that so much. I, you run into so many people who, they just, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I just talk about things and don't actually do too much. I right. feel like this is why I'm excited about, you know, you know what you're doing, because you're, you're actually like doing stuff. You're out there starting companies and, and making things happen rather than, you know, my, in my, my world, you know, I have a day job and I, I actually do stuff in the world, but like in terms of uh, this, I'm just, you know, writing articles about like, oh, this is fun. I've never had the impetus to say, I'm going to go take this vision and run with it. I think that that's so, that's so exciting. How did you how did you become that guy, you know, who who had a vision and didn't just like, I'm going to write an article about this and submit it to where I'm going to go do this. You know, this is what excites a lot of people still about Elon Musk, even though he's, you know, he's kind of, you know, aggravating at times. But that drive to go like do do stuff in the real world, what what is that? Where does that come from? I think I think most entrepreneurs are deeply traumatized people <laughs> and we're motivated by our trauma. I mean, it, it, like joking aside, I do think that there are certain things where um, entrepreneurs oftentimes are are born not made and you're you're kind of born in such a way where your context and your identity is derived from a lot of challenges and problems that you yourself have had growing mm. up. And I, I mean, maybe maybe that's a combination of nature and nurture then. So I'll, I'll kind of recant what I said, but I, I grew up in a very diverse uh, school. Um, I went to school on the outskirts of DC uh, when I was a kid and there were like a hundred different countries represented and 40 different languages spoken. And I was, I was a minority by far. Not only was I a mi minority in terms of uh, being like a Caucasian male in this very diverse school, but I was also a minority when it came to being like Jewish in the school, uh, being like one of the, the more like curious kids in the school. Many of these people were refugees that uh, their parents were working as like janitors or wait staff in the embassies in DC. And um, this this kind of like 75% of the school was on low income or, or free or reduced lunch. And so going to school every single day, I would hear stories about my friend who like fled El Salvador uh, during like the conflict there, or uh, one of my friends who literally saw his dad decapitated. And oh. 
And so growing up, I, I kind of had this um, inculcated in me from a very early age that the world was not a fair place. And mm. that the fact that I had privilege means meant that I had to do something with it. The fact that I recognized that and had that observational ability to step outside of myself and see these broken systems for what they were. And so I went off to school and the idea was to do medicine in terms of my, my scholastic education, but I ended up seeing somebody die in front of me. And, and I realized that working in a medical system for 10 years uh, and devoting my entire life to just saving one person at a time didn't fix a very, very broken system. And as Buckminster Fuller once said, that the best way to, um, to fix a system or, or kind of like go about improving upon a system is to create a new one that makes the old one obsolete. And so part of the reason I started companies is with this mentality of creating brand new systems that break our current existing systems and make it so that we, we enter into new modalities that change the way the world works. Like we, we are speaking on a product that was created by a company that actively changed the way humans interact mm -hmm. and the way information is accessed. And so something like that, I, I take a look at this concept of becoming a billionaire but becoming a billionaire, not from the basis of money, I don't give a shit about money. Like money is only as good as it's used for. And so in particular, I wanna become a billionaire in the, in the effect that my work, is have, my work has on people. So I, I like to, to think of um, the things that people use every day, like the basic necessities, the bare necessities, right? Like food, water, shelter, uh, that bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if I can use my talents and skills and the, the kind of lessons learned over the course of my career to solve some of those basic needs, it means that if you want, if you want to build, be like a millionaire and affect a million people, do make something that people use once. But if you want to be a billionaire, make something that people use every single day. And so that's kind of how I go about focusing my work and my effort is uh, building companies that are brand new systems that make old ones obsolete, and then focusing in on challenges and problems that people have on a day-to-day -day basis. So you said that you're moving up to the Bay Area pretty soon. I'm just kind of curious what brings you up, up north. Yeah, yeah, so I am starting to fundraise officially. Um, so we've now reached a point uh, at Spira where to reach the next level where I'm able to take algae and start replacing things other than just colors that I'm going to need some additional money on hand. And so we, we've done a really good job at being super capital efficient, very lean. I've raised less than a million dollars over seven years. I've gone in and generated a lot of money over $300,000 during the course of our company um, in terms of sales and whatnot. And that's kept us afloat and then continuing our research and continuing our work. So now it's time to, to raise our first official round of capital and to start scaling. I mean, we, we built out this big network and I want to put it to work. Uh, we built out this giant network of farms and there's a lot of different products that we would be able to displace from the supply chain that are all these nasty oil products. And uh, I'm very excited to start doing that. We just need a little bit of help as a means of getting to that stage. Like we can only really do uh, however much money that we have on hand. So, so that's part of the reason why we're seeking additional capital. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, hey, the uh, the Bay Area, it's it's become a little bit of a bleak place as people have been kind of like moving out. I mean, I moved out of there actually uh, about a year ago. Um, although I still love the Bay Area and I visit, you know, I still technically have a, my, my job is technically still there. I just work from home most of the time. I'm curious, are you going to be like in the East Bay or the or San Francisco proper? 
I'm living in the mission at first. So I'll be nice. spending okay. about three months in the mission, trying to be in this in the middle of everything as best as I can. And then I am going to go on an audit trip to tour and visit a lot of the farms that we have in East Asia in particular. So I'll be gone for a couple of months doing that. And then when I come back, I may either locate in LA or the Bay Area, it depends on where we can find a scale up laboratory space. Right now we're located in Los Angeles in Culver City. We have an amazing little lab here. Um, if we're hiring and adding additional people to the team, we're probably gonna need a bigger space. Cool. Yeah, I lived in the mission for a couple for about a uh, year or two, I think. Uh, it's great. I, I love the mission. The Bay Area welcomes a whole lot of like entrepreneurial people, and oh, it's yeah. very difficult to find uh, that sort of community. It's it's here, but it's it's sporadic and it's sparse, and it depends on where you are. And so I love my community in LA, and I built two co living houses here when I was I was here during COVID, um, and. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite ready to connect with some really enterprising people, people that think big, that don't shy away from uh, committing tons of resources to, to changing the way things work. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, that's fantastic. I've really valued taking your time today. I really appreciate yeah, of it. Of course. And yeah. I wish you the best of luck with the endeavors. It's super exciting. Thanks, man. Yeah, good talking to you, too.